Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Today I'm delighted to welcome Dr Tegan Bennett-Daylight, writer, teacher and critic, to Books, Books, Books to talk about her new book, The Details, subtitled On Love, Death and Reading, published by Scribner in July of this year. Tegan has written three novels for adults as well as some books for young people. The first of her books for adults, Bombora, was in 1995, shortlisted for the Vogel Prize. In 2002, she was named as one of the Sydney Morning Herald's best young novelists. Her collection of short stories, Six Bedrooms, published in 2015, was shortlisted for the Stella Prize. Tegan currently lectures in English and creative writing at Notre Dame University, and her work has been published in The Guardian, Sydney Review of Books, and The Australian, and has appeared several times in yearly collections of the best Australian essays. Tegan, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thanks so much, Nicole. It's so nice to be with you. Now, The Details is a collection of essays, eight essays written at different times, which are connected by three essays that have been written recently and which are called Details 1, Details 2 and Details 3. And in those three more recent essays, you write about your mother's death, about, amongst other things. Before we start to talk, I'm wondering if you could just read us, please, an extract from the book. Love to. I'm going to read from the last essay, Detail 3 because it's the most cheerful one. (laughs) The other two are a little bit grim, but this one's a cheerful one. My old friend Patrick sent me a scan of a page torn out of an exercise book, scribbled on in a loose, fast-moving hand, the hand of someone speaking to themselves, barely seeing the page. It's written by David McComb, the lead singer of Western Australian band The Triffids, about their 1986 album Born Sandy Devotion. Patrick and my husband Russell and I spend some of our idle time making lists and sending them to each other. When Prince died, we each made a list of our favourite 10 Prince songs and then Russell compiled them into a playlist. Several overlaps, including Mountains from Parade and The Ballad of Dorothy Parker from Sign of the Times. We also make lists of our favourite albums, of our heroes and heroines, our favourite books. It's a way of speaking to each other about a long shared history. The three of us have been together in one way or another for 30 or more years. Russell's favourite album is Prince's Parade. He has its barcode tattooed on his left bicep. Patrick has two favourites, Parade and Liberty Bell and the Black Diamond Express, the go-between's fourth album. My favourite album of all time, without hesitation, is Born Sandy Devotion. McComb writes, The theme will be unrequited love, but the language will reach way above and beyond that very literary, to to prevent it being sloppy. Muscular, slow, droning, long background strings, deft, jazzy bass and drums. Why is it my favourite album? It's because it so willingly reaches for greatness. It is very literary. But if Robert Forster was Charlotte Bronte, more intellectual, more controlled, then David McCoon was Emily, and born Sandy Devotional, his Wuthering Heights, a masterpiece both helpless and rural. The Triffids wrote landscapes of sound, grand songs to accommodate the grand feelings and deep commanding vocals of its lead singer. They made a kind of operatic beauty out of simple things. The Triffids were prepared to find Western Australia, Perth no less, a place of great passions. Born Sandy Devotional with its mad, apparently meaningless name says yes to art. I remember where I was when I learned that David McComb had died just before his 37th birthday. He'd had a heart transplant a few years earlier, having ruined his cardiovascular system with excessive drinking and drug taking. Finally, the heart rejected him or he it. Another note, this from McCombe's London Diaries, counts beers drunk on an ordinary night out. Personally, it was definitely a light night as far as imbibing goes. Nine or 11 pints, which is practically technically a night off, a night on the wagon per se. Despite the emerging narrative of disaster, I love this sentence. It's sprouting ugliness, all those self-conscious quotation marks. I love that pompous per se, which is only there for the sound of it. I love the showing off, the self-dramatising, the useful use of words like imbibing. I love the sound of practically technically, like dice cracking together. The Triffids, or David McComb in particular, 
taught me that writing like this, being grandiose, showing off, indulging yourself, wasn't a crime. Or it wasn't if through the practice of it you could produce art. Annie Dillard says, one of the things I know about writing is this. Spend it all, shoot it, play it, lose it all right away, every time. These things fill from behind, from beneath, like well water. Anything you do not give freely and abundantly becomes lost to you. It was 1999 and I was driving somewhere in the dark, most likely to or from Sydney, from or to the Blue Mountains. Radio played wide open road from Bourne Sandy Devotional. Tears coursed down my face. I felt the odd displaced grief of, living, of losing someone you never knew. Grief from McComb's loneliness, his or all of ours in the face of the death. And grief because I'd never had the chance to say to him, music like yours allows art in others. It is a part of who I am. And because of that, David McComb still lives. Tegan, thank you for that reading. In the first of the three essays, Details 1, Details 2 and Details 3, you write about when your mother was dying. In the second, you write about her actual death. And in the third, you write about the aftermath and the impact on you. Why did you decide to publish these eight essays as a collection and to structure the book in the way that you did? Well, for a long time, I had been writing essays. They were personal essays, some of them dealing with things like teaching and some of them dealing with my mum and some of the stuff around that. And some of them were just long essays, thoughtful essays on um, particular writers that I like. But I've always been, I love essay collections, but I particularly love the ones that have a narrative. And um, I learned a lot. I've got a really, a couple of really, really important um, collections of short stories in my life. One of them is Tim Winton's The Turning, and the others are the very early um, collections of Alice Munro, Lives of Girls and Women, and Beggar Maid. And those are really, really beautifully structured short story collections that, that kind of tell a full narrative as though they're an entire novel, and yet each story works as a publishable piece on its own. When I was writing my last book, Six Bedrooms, I kept turning to those books and consulting them to see the way they were written. And I think that lesson has stayed with me. So when I was, I knew I was collecting the essays, but I didn't know how I was going to collect them. And then all the lessons of the turning and Alice Munro came back and it was like, yep, I'm going to structure these in the same way. Six Bedrooms um, is structured it's anchored by several stories about one of the characters. So there are lots of different characters throughout the stories, but there are three or four stories particularly about one character, and it actually is a progression. You see her getting older. So that's the details kind of imitates that structure, which, of course, like all writers, I stole from someone else. <laughs> and I think you said somewhere that the three essays that you've written more recently, which punctuate those eight are there as a kind of a skeleton, as a sort yeah. of a, a backbone That's to, exactly right. to hold the collection together. Yeah. And, I mean, there are some beautiful, beautiful essay collections that don't use that structure, like Maria Tamarkin's um, Axiomatic deliberately resists structuring in that way. And um, Gia Tolentino's collection of essays doesn't feel to me as though it's got a really powerful structure. And they're still hugely readable books, but I have a real taste for order, I think. So So that's where that comes from. I think it means it's a more cohesive book that you can read from start to finish. The two that you've mentioned, I think, are much more, um, you, you might read one essay, pick, put, it, put the book down, go and read something else. But with yours, because of the structure that you've created, you do want to read it from start to finish. Yeah, and I really wanted readers to feel as though they were getting some of the satisfactions that you can from a novel, some of that narrative satisfaction, some sense that there's some kind of resolution, somewhere to travel with the collection. Let's start by talking about reading, which I think is really the central concern of this beautiful collection. And we'll start by talking about your mother. She was a great reader. And as you were growing up, she used to do something if you said that you were bored. What did she do? She went around the house. So we, we lived, I had a very privileged background. I grew up in Hunters Hill, which is um, the lower north shore of Sydney. And my dad was a corporate lawyer. My mum was a homemaker. And we had a very big house and it was full of bookshelves. 
So mum literally would, I, my bedroom was on the top story and she would go down to the bottom story and hunt through all the bookcases and then come back with a pile of books. She was a really, really committed reader, really um, devoted reader, and her way of conversing with us, the three of us, was often through books. So every time you said you were bored, she, you, she clearly saw it as an opportunity and she would rush downstairs and come back with all the books. And, you know, every so often she'd keep kind of giving me the same book over and over again, <laughs> hoping that this time round I might read it. And there were some I never read. But because I've got two siblings, we were able to share the reading out a bit. So she, so my sister read some of the books that I didn't read and my brother read some of the books that I didn't read. But, yeah, she, that would be her thing. And so she'd give you this huge pile of books. She'd sit on the end of your bed, give you this huge pile of books, and then I'd rat through them and choose which ones I wanted to read. And Tegan, were they always books that she'd read herself that she'd loved? Always, always. Although um, we had a really important um, sort of ritual birthday and Christmas, we always got a pile of books as well. And she was really good at listening out for what I was interested in. So particularly as I got older and, you know, I moved out of home when I was 17 and I was reading, I was in that phase where we were, we were all reading Milan Kundera and uh, Toni Morrison, those are really, really important books. I bet you they were important to you too. <laughs> they, they absolutely were, yes. Yeah. Critical. Yeah. <laughs> so she heard, if you know what I mean, that I was reading those. And, in fact, I was just looking at my bookshelf the other day and my husband said, you have to throw out some of these Milan Kundera books. I was like, well, Never. I haven't read them <laughs> since the 80s. You're right. But, but my mother gave them to me. So every time a new one came out, she would buy them for me. Were your siblings keen readers in the same way that you were? Yeah, but differently. Um, not 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 quite so mad with it as I was. So they were they they had other things in their lives. Whereas I didn't have quite so much in my life. My brother is a rereader, so he's is a what? Not, sorry, he's a rereader. So he's not he's not that widely read, although he's actually reading a lot at the moment. But for instance, he read all the Hornblower books and um, he read Lucky Jim, I think about 50 times. And my sister um, was really addicted to the 19th century, so she's read, for instance, everything by Anthony Trollope. And she's, uh, my brother is a psychotherapist that he's writing at the moment as well. And my sister is a teacher, so she's able to sort of transfer her reading onto her students, which I think she loves doing. You've said that your conversation with your mother about books was a real constant in your life through your childhood and through your adult life. And you said something lovely that when you read now that she's gone, you feel like you're continuing a conversation with her. And you give us a particular example, Moby Dick. And you said that she gave that to you when you were 15 or 16. You didn't read it at the time, but you have read it recently since your mother died. And that in reading it, you could hear her voice. Could you tell us a little bit about how reading keeps her alive for you? I guess guess that has something to do particularly with the two of us. I think I've always felt uh, very alive in books. So it's not just just the flat process of reading. For some strange reason, a part of me feels as though it lives in books. And I think she felt the same way because certainly when she spoke to me about books, um, you could, she couldn't stop herself. She was sort of uh, tripping over herself to quote things at you and to, you know, she, she really loved poetry and she brought a lot of poetry to me and she would point things out and recite lines of poetry to describe them. And so she's been dead now for six years and, um, but the reading part of her, just, I, I, it's very difficult to describe. It's not spooky or supernatural, but she's, she is definitely alive in lots of the books that I read. And if I find that I'm, uh, or I hear someone talking about a book that she loved but that I didn't read, I, I, in one of the essays, maybe, I'm not sure if this one actually found its way into the book, but I was talking to the Australian writer, Joan London, um, on stage, and she was saying, oh, there was this great book. You did talk. Yes, I did talk, talk about, about this. Yeah. Go on. And I was like, and I and I was like, okay. And she said, it's about these children, 
and they set up house for themselves, which of course is basically the entire 19th and 20th century of children's books. So that could be anything. So she was saying, but I can't remember the name of it. And I said, Pioneer Shack. And she said, that's the one. So my mother gave me that one to me about 50 times and I never read it, but my sister read it. So I've still got mum's copy of it. So maybe I'll read it sometime. You write about the joys of reading Proust that have come to you more recently. You said that it took you several attempts, but that um, after several attempts you you have recently read volume one, Swan's Way, and that you really enjoyed it. And there's a great passage where you say you lie, lie in bed laughing at the abundance, the joyful contemporaneity of reading, allowing me to live alongside Proust, see what he sees, feel what he feels. Would you like to talk a little bit about that feeling of pure joy that reading yeah, the yeah. very best writing can give you? Yeah, that's in my essay about Brian Dillon, who's an Irish writer who suffers from really, really major depression. And that was a review of his um, lovely little collection, Essayism, which is really worth reading. Um, and I've, I've had a few bouts of depression myself and one of the things that happens when you're depressed, and Brian Dillon writes really well about this, is that reading, it, it either seems flat or featureless to you or it can actually hurt you. It can, it can feel as though it's getting in too close to you. So when I'm reading well, I know I'm not depressed. And when I was reading Proust, I knew I was sort of lifting out of a, of a bad period. And um, I'd spend all this time thinking, oh, I'm, I'm not up to Proust. I'm not grown up enough for Proust. I can't read him. Everybody else can read him, but I can't read him. <laughs> and then I finally discovered that the only way to read Proust is to just let go, to stop expecting anything of yourself and just allow the words to flow over you. And then you actually get filled with this kind of joy and um, this, this mad, mad abundance of images, even though in some senses he's writing so confined because his characters barely leave the house, but there's just this vividness. It's so joyful. And, and it really, I mean, this is, this is the truth of all classics. You discover that what a classic is is a book that feels contemporary whenever you read it. And that's what happened to me with Swan's Way. Is it like anything else that you'd ever read? Um, there are a few things. It did remind me um, of Karl Uwe Knausgaard, who's written the yeah the Death in the Family books. Now he gets compared to Proust a bit because he does that mad recording of detail. Although he has a particular interest in not leaning on the image, not leaning on beauty, only leaning on what he calls fact. I'm, I'm just challenging that slightly because he has to leave things out. Nothing can be totally mm. true. No writing is is the real truth. So his his books are not so joyful to read as Proust's are, but there's definitely something um, something similar there. Literature for you, Tegan, is an absolutely essential part of you. It's at the core of your being. And you describe it as something to turn to when we are seeking understanding of ourselves and of our attitudes in one of your essays in this book. What are some of the books that you have turned to to understand yourself better? It's a solid question. Um, when, I was, when I was younger, there were a couple of really important books. Um, the, the Secret Garden. I don't know if you've heard of um, Joan Aiken. She was, a, uh, she was the daughter of the American poet Conrad Aiken, and she wrote a series of magnificent children's books set in an imagined um, period in, in 19th century England. The James III books, they're called. She imagined that James III had ascended the throne. Those were really, really important to me. They're all about independent children, as, again, most children's books are. Then The Catcher in the Rye was so important to me that it nearly sent me mad because I do have a bit of a tendency to be overwhelmed by books. If they have really strong voices, I do have a tendency that I learn to guard against throughout my 20s because it was overwhelming sometimes where I would just be inhabited by a book. So for a long time, I spoke like Holden Caulfield. It's sort of embarrassing wow. to say, but I did. How I did. old were you? were you a teenager when you or read that? 14 or 15, yeah. And that was hugely important to me. And this is skimming over lots of other books. Then I went through a really important and long-lived um, Helen Garner phase. 
which I think is essential for any Australian writer to go through. I'm going to ask um, you a little bit about Helen yeah. and her influence on your writing when we come to talk a bit more yeah, about your sure. writing. It's always a pleasure to talk about her. Um, Toni Morrison was really important to me, um, although I don't really read her much anymore. You named then Beloved I, as one of yeah, them. Yeah, Beloved's just, I mean, again, this is, this is, I think you and I might be of an age, and, yes. you know, when those big books come out, she won the Pulitzer in 86. Mm. I think that was my last year at high school. Mm. So I started uni at 17 and everybody was reading Beloved and suddenly I was reading Beloved and it just blew me away. And then um, probably the next, I mean, you know, I was just reading constantly, so I never, ever stopped. But the next huge and important sort of writer in my life was one I write about, George Saunders, mm. when a friend gave me um, uh, Pastoralia. That same year that I was given Pastoralia, I was also given The Broken State by James Wood, which mm. just changed my life completely. Uh, he's been so important to the way I think. In, what, in what way, Tegan? Because um, he has this wonderful mixture um, in the way he, he's a critic, just he's to a, be clear. He's actually an English critic. He lives in America now, but he's originally from Durham. Um, and he has this incredible mixture of total authority when he writes criticism and helplessness before the text. So it's this really joyful surrendering to the beauty of a book at the same time as being fully in charge of what he says. And he is the kind of critic who, when he writes, he adds to the book. Mm. So he never takes away from a book. He always, even if he's highly critical of a book, he always adds more to it. He's written a beautiful, beautiful review of the corrections, which I know Jonathan Franzen was really resentful about. But... Um, I wouldn't be resentful about that review. I think it really understands that book well. Um, and then uh, after George Saunders came Alice Munro and she was a huge, she just changed my life and probably turned me into a short story writer. And then um, Kazuo Ishiguro, Tim Winton um, and Alan Hollinghurst have all been writers whose work's really important to me. I've read something lovely, Tegan, that of many of those that you've just named, you like to reread. I think you said almost every year. Why do you do that? Just to change the relationship. It's um, it's the same reason that you keep in touch with a friend. You discover uh, a new relationship with a book every time you read it. Um, I used to have what I used to call um, Austin festivals, where I would just reread all of Austin every year. I've actually stopped doing that, um, partly because Alice has taken over. That's my eighteen-year-old daughter. She's reading Austin now, so she's doing that job for me. But, yeah, you know, you, you read a book, it alters you forever, and then you think, oh, who am I now? And the book tells you. And now I need to ask, is the relationship between you and Alice and books parallel to the relationship between you and your mother and books? Yeah, it really is. And, of course, you know, she's different, so she has different tastes. But there are a couple of books. I don't think, I don't know if Mum ever got to know this, but... There's a book called Two Little Savages by an American writer called Ernest Thompson Seaton. It was published in the 19th century. It's another of those children escaping, the wilderness, uh, escaping into the wilderness books. I tried very hard, Mum, to get Alice to read that book and I wasn't able, but I was able to get her to read A Tale of Two Horses, which is another book I really adored. I was able to get her to read the Joan Aiken books. Uh, she's read Austen. She read Catcher in the Rye, but only when I paid her to. <laughs> Did you I, like that? <laughs> I, love, I love that part in your book where you, I love that you said it because a lot of yeah. us do that sort of thing and we don't confess to it. I yeah, love no. that you told us that you sometimes paid your teenage children to read books and they did, right? Yeah, they did. They did. And, and just a note on that, that's my sort of feeling about that's really the underpinning of the whole um, essay collection. And that's one of the reasons that I often tell people that I'm from Hunters Hill because not because I think I'm so fabulous I'm from Hunters Hill, but it feels untruthful to pretend not to be what I am. I'm a child of really extreme privilege in a lot of ways. My parents were um, Labor voters and we went to the local high school, so, you know, a different kind of privilege, but nonetheless real privilege. And I think it's... 
bullshitty not to say that. So that's the reason that mm. I'm honest about paying my kids to read books. Mm. I, I love that. We all, all of us who love books would love our children to love them as well. And I love yeah. that 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 was one of the ways that you encouraged yours too. And what I'm wondering now is that Alice, I think you mentioned is in your, I think you told me, is now at first year uni. Does she influence your reading taste? Has she introduced you to new writers? I'm only in the area of YA at this stage. So one of the differences between her life and mine is that there wasn't really much YA fiction around when you and I were young. No. So we would graduate, you know, you'd sort of move from your kids' books into Austin or something like that. So Alice has got this real abundance of YA. There's just so much great stuff around. And she put um, you onto the Hunger Games, Tegan, because you talk about that. It was Paddy, actually, my son, who was, oh, maybe it was Alice first. Yeah, I've read the Hunger Games because of them. I've read Twilight um, because of them. They both really, really adored uh, the book that was made into Love, Simon. That was a really important film for this generation of kids it might have been for your son as well it was really important to my kids so they've read all of her books um yeah so yeah Alice hasn't so far because she's not doing English at uni or not yet anyway so she hasn't brought new books to me she'd be hard put to be honest because I'm pretty out there (laughs) you said something in one of the essays that I thought was particularly pertinent to um, some of the issues that we're confronting at the moment here in Australia you said reading breeds thinking and thinking breeds resistance. What are your thoughts on the recent decision by the federal government to increase university fees for humanities-based subjects? It's, it's hard. It, again, it's one of those situations where I have to sort of check my privilege as it were. I have to say to myself, come on. You know, this is a culture war waged against people like us and the things that we love, and it's a disgrace, and they should be thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly ashamed of themselves. But at the same time, our Aboriginal brothers and sisters, our African-American brothers and sisters are fighting in a culture war that's far more powerful than ours and far more dangerous to them. Mm. So I don't want to set up what we're suffering uh, too highly or above what they're suffering at the moment. At the same time, uh, I take it very personally. I, You know, I'm an English academic. My husband's an English academic. My daughter's doing an arts degree. We're paying for it, um, or some of it. I haven't worked out the finer, finer details of that yet, to be honest. But um, I, had this, I had this period in the last three months, so where are we? We're in June 2020. I had this period where our government really did handle the COVID crisis pretty well with some great advice, I think, not necessarily government-driven outside the government. I think they got some really good advice and they took it well. Tegan, let's talk a little bit about this concept of details. So that's the the title of your book. It's the details, the three essays that you've chosen to um, punctuate the, the other essays where they're all Um, called Details 1, 2 and 3. And I read somewhere that you'd said that that is really the central idea of this collection, that it's always in the detail where life is really lived. What do you mean by that? I guess that comes from my deep reading and from my writing and from my teaching as well. Students will say to me something like, oh, is it okay to tell this love triangle story or is it okay to tell this story where this person gets murdered in a dark alley or whatever? And it's always, all the stories have been told. There are no new stories. There's only the detail of the story that's original. And it's only in the detail that we really know what something is like and how it's happened. And it's only in the detail of reading that you that a book really comes alive. You don't read don't read Ishiguro for the plot you read for the detail for what he does with the writing and it's the same with all the writers that I love it's people who I think this is one of the things that I loved about James Wood's work straight away is the way um I had this I used this sentence to describe him I got to interview him at the writers festival once which was just a dream come true and he was wonderful wonderful to interview and I said to him you're like a young David Attenborough you lift a sentence off the page like a snake out of a tree. And it's that, it's that 
So when James Wood writes about a book, he doesn't just say, well, Ishiguro's themes are such and such and such and such. He lifts a sentence out and has you look at it. And that's what makes a book come alive. And we know that when we walk down the street or when we talk to someone or we look at a beloved face or we sit in a bedroom with someone or in front of a television with someone, it's not the big stuff, it's the detail, it's the small things about them, about the situation that make life live. So when I'm teaching, I'm always telling students to look away from plot and not to worry about, has this happened before? Have I stolen this from somebody? The detail is the thing that you own mm. as a writer. Nobody else, nobody else has it. It's just so yours. How to make that story, which inevitably has been told before, your own, I guess, yeah. is what you're saying. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So the essay in this collection, which I think best exemplifies that, is the one, Vagina, in which you talk about mm. the birth of your two children yeah. and then the aftermath of that. Yeah. You describe in, in very vivid detail both the process of giving birth, in particular your first labour, which was a, a longer and more torturous one, and then health problems that you had with your vagina after the birth of your children. And you tell that story in very careful, very deliberate detail. Mm. And you make the point that childbirth and women in labour and death in childbirth are things that are written off stage. They're not written about very much. And you, there's a great quote which I have to share uh, in which you say, literature generally pretends that the vagina isn't there unless it's juxtaposed with a penis. Now, you said at the end of this essay that you really needed to tell this story and that it was important for your literature for you to do so and that it was very important for you to tell the story of the details of women's mm. lives. Could you just talk yeah. about why that was so important to you? Yeah, absolutely. So just to let the listener know, um, I had a, an episiotomy, which is a cutting of the vaginal wall after my first birth or during my first birth. Um, and that seemed to heal up pretty well. And I had a little bit of just normal post-birth incontinence, which, you know, if you'd been told at 25, just normal post-birth incontinence, that's nothing, you'd be horrified. But you just don't listen when people tell you those things. So that was just normal. But then um, my second child, Paddy, uh, he was born in 90 minutes. We just got past birth in time. And uh, I noticed after that that I had this weird pressure. I was feeling like a little balloon in my vagina. And it didn't hurt or anything, but it was there all the time. And it drove me insane because I couldn't stop thinking about it because it was always there. And I was always sort of moving my legs and readjusting myself and sticking fingers in my pants. It was a real bore. It was a real bore. And finally, I went to a pelvic floor physiotherapist and they told me I had a partial bladder prolapse, which is quite common. Mm. And then I went to an obstetrician and a surgeon and she said that the walls of my vagina, because of those births, were very stretchy. And she said I could do lots of exercises, but the, the new stretchiness or looseness in the walls of the vagina weren't going to, wasn't going to get better, basically. So that was affecting our sex life and it was just affecting very much the way I felt about myself. I was constantly distracted by it and I felt lowered by it. Um, and I eventually, my obstetrician, who's also a wonderful surgeon, um, operated on me and brought the walls of the vagina together and good as new, better than new, fantastic, went really, really well. But I just never read about that anywhere. Never. No. Just And yet, you know, you, it happens to women all the time. Mm. And it's not... It's not that I feel that we have to kind of lie on the ground moaning about the terrible things that happen because birth is an ordinary process and it does ordinary things to the body. These are not necessarily great traumas, or they weren't for me. They were, it was very frustrating and difficult, but it wasn't a huge trauma. But I just hadn't seen it described mm -hmm. anywhere. And I do, I do this thing every year. I go away with um, Charlotte Woods. Lucinda Holdforth and Vicky Hastrich, and uh, we write for a week. So we go to we have various places on the coast that we go to, and we write all day, and then we meet at five o'clock for a very very strong gin and tonic. And um, I got down to the coast with this story. It's 
just like, I've got to write this. It's about 6,000 words and I wrote the whole thing in about two days. And I kept coming to the table and reading bits to them. And those guys had lots of children in their lives because he brought up a son with a friend of hers, but none of them have given birth. So this was sort mm. of new information to them. <laughs> and the looks of horror on their faces, they're very, they, they were really, they're fantastic, fantastic listeners, fantastic interlocutors. And the last thing with that essay has to go to my husband because I had a very artistic name for the, um, for the essay. And he said, what are you doing? You have to call this essay Vagina. So that goes to him. He said it's really <laughs> important so people know what it's about straight away because I was going to call it, you know, what isn't there or some silly thing. I can't remember. But, yeah. Something, a point that you make at some point in the essays or maybe I've read it somewhere else, we all know that expression, all of us that are book nerds, that we read to know that we're not alone and that it's important for all of us to be able to read about our own experiences. And it seemed to me that that's, some, that's really an enormous contribution that you've made to the literature of the world, really. As you were experiencing those things, I imagine you probably did a lot of research, but I imagine you weren't able to find anything much about written about what you'd experienced. And I... Yeah. I imagine that's why you felt it was important to record that. Yeah, yeah. It's, you make me sound a better person than I am. I mostly did it for me because I just couldn't stop. You know, it's like, oh, I've got to get this down. It's not going to leave me alone. And, and I had to, you have to wait till a story like that is kind of resolved, although you have a vagina. Vaginas are never resolved. They're always doing new things, but mostly resolved. Um, but I... I did it mostly for me, but I also did it because I wanted I wanted other women to be able to share the story. And actually one of my finest moments came years later. I was sitting with a group of uh, writing teachers and one of them was a poet and he said to me that, um, that the book that, that that was originally in was Geordie Williamson's Collected Essays, Best Australian Essays. And he told me that his wife, they've got several kids, his wife came up to him and slammed the book down on the table in front of him and said, read this. So that was, <laughs> that was a really good moment to know, to know that it had had a reach. And, I, and to be honest, um, having this book out there, that's the essay I'm most desperate for other people to read. I really want, I, I really hope that, that one gets, it's weird to use the word disseminated, it you know will. I mean, <laughs> it will. I think it's out there. <laughs> so let's come back and talk about some other aspects of details. One of the uh, essays, maybe it, maybe it's one of the detail stories, but you talk about a close friend of yours, Vicky, who you had boys that were the same age, and I think maybe your daughters were the same age as well. And you walk together once a week and you talk about things and you talk about the importance of swapping because you see each other every week you talk about the details of each other's lives, the day-to-day -day details. And mm. the expression that you use, Tegan, is that in swapping the details in this way with somebody who you're seeing every week who knows so much about your background, that exchanging details in this way is a kind of absolution. What did you mean by that? Well, because um, we, Vicky, so this is a different Vicky to Vicky Hastrich. This is a friend who lives in the mountains called Vicky Halling. And we met. Yeah, because Alice and Ruby were uh, in the same class together and because we liked the look of each other and we sort of got each other quite quickly and our boys are the same age as well. Um, and like all parents, we're imperfect and um, we often made mistakes. I would say, I don't know if this is true for you, but I would say that the biggest, the biggest thing that we used to talk about was losing our tempers with our children because being a parent, not just a mother, a father as well, makes you exhausted and you lose your shit with your kids and you need to be able to tell someone for several reasons. One, to help you not do it so much, but also to hear back that it's okay, mm. that everyone's doing it. So mm. it was, and we're still doing this. So the girls are 18 now and the boys are 15. And Vicky has a, a daughter, Elsie, who's coming up for eight. Um, and we still compare notes just, just to make us feel more human, just to make us feel as though we exist. Because if there's one thing I've learned about being a parent, it's the more other parents you know, 
the better you'll do. The more you try to function on your own, the harder it is because you never, I mean, we've got so many, you know, how much screen time are they supposed to have? When are they supposed to have sex? When are they supposed to have drugs? All of those. And, you know, when they're younger, should you smack them? And I did smack my children and I wish I hadn't, but I did. Um, just, just being able to say that to each other mm. and saying, oh, I did this wrong. And, you know, we would talk about, you know, slamming out and slamming doors and screaming, screaming so hard that our throats hurt and all of that we've kind of stuff. That, yeah, we've all done it. And, <laughs> and you keep thinking, no, I won't, I won't. And then you're doing it, you know. So it's been a really, really important friendship. And because we've had, um, we had this, this weird coincidence where our mothers died within a few months of each other, both of lung disease. So mm. we just had this, uh, we were all very, already very close, but it was very bonding in a very weird way. And I want to say, because we've shared a lot of sadness, but one of the really important moments of those final days for each of our mothers is that we both, had a family case of nits on the deathbed. So we sat by our mother's deathbeds sort of combing our children's hair and, you know, applying unguents and that kind of thing. So those details, there's cheerful details as well as grim details to share. And, and let me say that that detail really enhances that story. Gallows, yeah, because, uh, because otherwise it's just, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and otherwise it's just, well, it was horrible and they died and that was really unpleasant and really difficult. Um, and I was careful to give that, that essay, Vicky's read that essay, I needed to know that she was okay with it before I went ahead. So I want to ask you about one final aspect of details that you talk about and it's just after your mother died and she'd been ill for quite some time and she'd been extremely ill for a, yeah. a period of time and then she eventually passed away. And you came home and you said that the day after she died, you woke up at five in the morning, you couldn't sleep. And your husband woke up, Russell was next to you, woke up, and you told him every detail of what had happened on her last mm. night. And you said he listened very, very carefully and that that was the single kindest thing anyone had ever done for you. How important was it to you to share with him not just the fact of her passing, but the detail of what yeah. happened to her. Incredibly important, incredibly important. And, and the thing I still remember about it um, is just that he knew, he, he didn't, he didn't, I, I woke up, I had this really weird sensation that I was floating or, or rising on something. And as I woke up, I realised I was rising on tears. I was sort of crying before I was awake, if you know what I mean. Um, and he woke up next to me and he put his arm around me and we didn't have a conversation. He didn't say, now tell me everything. It, it was just a sort of understood thing that that would be the moment that I would do it because I'd come home from the deathbed in Sydney back up to the Blue Mountains the day before and he'd been out with the kids. He'd taken them to a friend's place that we were supposed to be at that day and we'd sort of, I was so exhausted and we had the kids and we'd sort of, silently agreed that I I wouldn't, you know, give the details to him in front of the kids and all of that kind of thing. So it was a really important moment. When you tell a death or a birth, I mean, I've told deaths and births, you know how important it is to tell a birth. You've got to say, and then my water's broke and then the pain started and then they got much worse and then they did this. Um, it was just, just a way of making it real um, instead of this kind of weird, sort of strange thing that had happened to me. Um, and, yeah, it was just a, I've just never forgotten it. I can, I can picture us, you know, where we were. Let's talk now a little bit about your writing, Tegan, and you write fiction as well as non-fiction. You said about fiction, uh, writing fiction is a response to reading fiction, an attempt to be part of the conversation. What did you mean by that? Could you tell us a little bit about that concept of but yeah. being part of an ongoing conversation. Yeah. Um, I, I again, I this often this stuff arises from conversations with my students because I do get students who say nothing big or bad has ever happened to me, and so I've got nothing to tell. 
and my response is nobody has anything to tell or you know or stop wishing to be somebody who has something to tell because that is not something that you should necessarily wish for some kind of trauma that you can um, rehearse for the world um, to me the 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 need to write fiction always always sprang from all the fiction that I was reading I just couldn't stop reading I was so obsessed with reading and um, I think because of this odd sort of bodily feeling that um, I was alive in books, it genuinely, quite genuinely felt like a conversation. And the only way to join the conversation was to write back to those writers. Um, I just, I think, I think in that essay, I say something about um, William Burroughs, who said that he began to be a writer because of the moment where he was playing a stupid drunken game of William Tell and he shot his wife dead. And he said, that's the moment that, you, that I became a writer. And it's like, no, you were a writer well before that. That was very unlucky and dumb. Mm. Um, but, but no, you're a writer because of, because, of, because of your reading and because of something to do with um, your, the relationship you have with words. You can't stop, you can't stop toying with them. You, you tell a lovely story about when you were a little girl. I think you were only six. You must have read a story about the Wombles. And yeah. you wrote to the author to suggest an alternative ending. Yeah, yeah. Elizabeth Beresford. So I read all the Wombles books when I was a kid and I had some Wombles and I've still got one of them. So, yes, I wrote to Elizabeth Beresford. I must have written a letter to Puffin Books. My mother must have sent it off for me. And she wrote back and I still got the letter on Wombles letterhead and um, she said, thanks for your lovely suggestions because, of course, being me, this is the kind of kid I was. I didn't just write to say you're great. Yeah. In fact, I don't think I even said that. No, I, think he, I just said here's yes, how some you ideas. Improve. Here's yeah, how you yeah. improve your writing. Here's some thoughts. Have, have these ideas. And one of my uh, my favourite Womble was the really difficult Womble. He's a bit like Mary in the Secret Garden. It was Bungo. He was really awkward and he was a real show off. And he, I just related to him very powerfully. Um, and I suggested that she write a story called Bungo Runs Away. And she said, as a matter of fact, I've just written one like that. So that was really good. We're going to return now to Helen Garner, Tegan, who you talked about briefly before. You said something lovely that I don't think it was in this book. I think it was somewhere else. But you said, if novels are letters to other authors, then my early books were letters to Helen Garner. In this book, you do, in an essay about Helen's work, talk about her first book in particular, Monkey Grip, and how much it taught you about writing. And that was because, you say, she had done something really new with the novel. You said she really cracked open the narrative. What was it that she did with Monkey Grip that was so special and so novel? And how did that influence and has that influenced you in your own writing? Yeah, that's a lovely question. Um, the, the thing the thing about Monkey Grip is um, that it was uh, sort of put together out of Helen's diaries, which, of course, have now been published. Um, and she she said, she always said she spent a long time saying, no, 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 it's not my diary. It's something completely new. And then she thought, oh, fuck it. It is my diary. I write really good diaries. But she said what she did was was she took out what was good and she put it in her novel and she wrote some bridging scenes. Mm. I think what Helen taught me is that um, she, she probably was the first writer to teach me that a book lives in its details. So with Monkey Grip, things happen and people move from place to place. There's no strict plot. And, of course, one of the main characters is a junkie, so the plot has to keep folding back on itself because that's what junkie life is like. It keeps going back and back and back. Mm. She keeps taking mm. him back and then losing him again and then taking him back and losing him again. Because mm. that's what but happens. Because that's what happens, yeah. But I didn't, um, that didn't trouble me at all. Um, what excited me was the way that she looked at things. And, of course, I'd read Australian writers before, um, but Helen, I think, was the first the first Australian writer I read who made me feel as though the country that I lived in and the places that I saw and thought about were present, were really there. Um, and, you know, as you go on reading, that, that sense increases, but 
I think the only the only other really powerfully Australian book I'd read was Ethel Turner's Bobby, Miss Bobby, fabulous book set partly in the Blue Mountains. Um, but Helen's work just made me realise that if you were really good at detail, then the rest would just take care of itself. So I, when I when I wrote my first novel, and it took me years to, you know, I kept trying and trying and trying to write my first novel and I kept writing these terrible things. And um, I always, as I was writing, had Helen's fiction, early fiction open on the desk around me. And I used to just sort of dip my head into her fiction the way, um, you know, a stork might into a pool, if you know what I mean, to just kind of refresh myself or look for something. And I would kind of come up and think, okay, now I know what to do. So she was an active teacher, even though I didn't meet her for years. And then, and then I met her, and I just thought, I'm going to die. I've, yeah. What was I've that met like? Helen Garner? You know what? What was that like? And I wanted to ask if you'd ever interviewed her for a festival. I have interviewed her. There's there's a, an interview up somewhere. I did the the Sydney Writers Festival with her one year. How did that um, feel? Well, it's not as it's not as interesting as just talking to her, actually, because we're both sort of doing a job. Um, probably I, I've, I've got to know her bit by bit by bit over the years. And I have to say that she's, she's an enormously generous um, sister in writing. So she uh, supports younger writers. I'm hardly young, but I'm younger than she is. And she is very very quick to praise and quick to support. And I had this incredible thing where I, Six Bedrooms, my book of short stories had just come out and I very vividly remember where I was. I was sitting in front of the television with the kids and Russell and we were showing them Gallipoli for the first time. It's like time to watch Gallipoli for the first time. And my phone started pinging and then it was pinging and pinging and pinging. Usually it's a teenager, you know, when it pings and pings, but the teenagers were in the room with me and it was Helen. And she was reading Six Bedrooms and texting me every time a phrase came up that she loved and saying the most just gorgeous things. This is so rich and real and true. Oh, my God, how are you doing this? And it was just, I would say that it felt like I, it's the opposite of being sort of driven out of your body by excitement. It was like being driven into your body with excitement. It was like, this is real. This writer that I have admired and who's meant so much to me for so long um, is reading my work. That was all I ever wanted her to do. But yeah, you, it's, you, it's, it's like telling Elizabeth Beresford that you've got some ideas for her stories. It's like, ah, enough on you. I just, want, <laughs> I just want you to come to me. So the thought that Helen might one day read my work actually sustained me when I was a young writer. And the, the other writer who I wanted to read my work was Tim, Tim Winton. And he's he's a good friend and um, he's been incredibly generous as well. And that has just been, that is a remarkable feeling. His book, The Turning, really influenced you, didn't it, with the it writing did, yeah. of Six Bedrooms? Yeah, yeah. That's, that, that was very important to the me. The connection of short stories that did have a continuous narrative thread running through it. Yeah, yeah, he taught me a lot. I mean, you, there's so much to learn from him. Um, he's a great plotter, but uh, his voice and just where we became friends through writing letters to each other and um, his letters are like you open the envelope and it's like flames come out, not because he's angry or anything, but because his letters are so vivid. I've never read anything like them. They're just... They're so alive. They're so lively on the page. His voice is so strong. You see why he's such a loved writer and why he's so good. He just can't stop himself. Everything that he describes has this richness and this texture and this vitality, this hugely vital voice. It's very thrilling. So to what extent does the meeting these writers who you've admired and who've influenced you, I can only begin to imagine how much that must feed back into and enrich your own writing. It just makes you feel as though you're not alone when you're writing. Um, you, everybody wants readers. That's what we want. And when you have readers like Helen or Tim, you have readers of a very, very high calibre. And it actually does something to your work. So mm. 
if I know Helen's read mm. something that I've written, I'll then go back and read it again because she's changed it by reading it, even though it's not changed. So do you have her or Tim's voice in your ear then, having formed relationships with them and knowing that they do read your writing? As you write now, do you hear their voices in your ear? Do you, do you think, is this up to scratch? Is this, is this you know, Interesting. Is, Helen and yeah. Tim going to like this? No, I think, I think once you get to know the real person, um, you're in deep conversation with the work but you're also in deep conversation with the person and so you don't have that. It, it sort of changes the place that the conversation takes place. So with Helen and Tim, the conversation now takes place in person mm. or by letter or by text or by email. Helen and I sometimes write long emails to each other. Having said that, Helen has millions of friends and so does Tim and I'm very low down on the rung of their friends. But but I would say that um, the, the really living conversation that I'm having in books at the moment is with James Wood, who I've met but I don't know. So he's not read anything I've written. Um, so what do you mean? Yeah, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so he's, he's, I'm writing to him. Literally? You know what I mean? Not literally. He's no. in your ear. But I, he's, his are the books. When I'm writing essays, his are the books that I have open on the book around me now. And here's are the books I kind of put my face into to sort of drink a draft of what he's up to and to sort of borrow a voice. Is that particularly in your critical writing when you're writing reviews yeah. and critical writing? Yeah. But actually I'll read um, James Wood while I'm writing fiction as well because he's as good a critic as a great fiction writer. He writes very, fiction himself now yeah. as well. Well, the fiction, I don't, I, I don't like the fiction as much as I like the critical mm. writing. The critical writing is where he is. What I mean is, mm. he's as great a writer as Ishiguro. If mm. there was a Nobel Prize for criticism, you'd mm. get it. You know, it's just there isn't, so it's not going to happen. Another conversation that I've been having for a long time, and that sort of came to this beautiful fruition. And the reason I started with it was that one with David McComb of the Triffids. So I didn't ever know him, and he died, you know, uh, twenty years ago now. But um, I had to check some of those quotes with Graham Lee from the Triffids. So I sent him the essay and I got this email back that said, what did he say? He said, what a beautiful piece of writing. You got Dave completely. Oh. And that was like, oh, that was my finest hour. That, went, that email went straight to Patrick and Russell to show them because David McCoon was such a hero of ours. To and, all of you. Yeah, and to know... To know that I was reading McComb the way he wanted to be read, that was the really joyful feeling. Tegan, you, you write about him in the final essay, Details 3, and that's, that's one I'd like to close on. And I'd like to ask yeah. you, the, the subtitle of the book is On Love, Death and Reading. We've talked a lot about reading. We've touched a little bit on love and on death, but I wanted to come back to those to close our conversation. In this collection, you write about the deaths of two people who you love very much, your mother who died in 2014 after a long illness, and your very close friend, Georgia Blaine, the writer, who died in 2016, tragically, 13 months after she was diagnosed with a brain tumour. Let's just talk for a moment about your mother. You talk about the, the months leading up to when she was dying and, and the important, it seemed to me, the very important part that literature played in those last few months in two ways. You said in one way she drew on her own love of literature. So she wasn't a religious person. She, she knew what she was approaching. She knew she was approaching her death. She didn't know what there was there. And she was quoting from Hamlet to try to describe or to imagine what, what there yeah. might be there on the other side. And then the other way that literature was important was that you read to her. You said you hopped into bed and you read to her some of the old favourites such as My Family and Other Animals. I was wondering to what extent do you think that continued conversation about literature brought comfort to her and to what extent did it bring comfort to you? I think it, um, I think it probably had, had a good and a bad side. The good side was that it, I remember reading my family and other animals to her when she was in hospital and that was really joyful and she, she lay there and she said, oh, I remember, when I, I remember reading this when it came out. She, I think she was 16 or 17 when it came out. No, or maybe she was given it when she was 16 or 17. And she said, and I thought, why aren't I there? 
why don't I go to Corfu right now? And that, I know exactly that's how Gerald Dale's writing makes you feel. And in parenthesis, I'm, my um, lockdown reading is Lawrence Durrell. Oh, so fabulous. So that's been great. So that was really, it, it, it gave us a, a place to communicate um, that we loved each other. So reading, reading with her, reading to her, talking about the books that we loved, kind of opened up conversations in a way. But I think it also, there was something missing that it was very difficult for us to say, you know, you're going to die and I love you and I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do about that. We, we failed to have that conversation and I think, um, I think I might, I don't think I was taking refuge in the literary conversations, but those were probably the closest conversation we had about what was actually happening. And, and they, weren't, they weren't really conversations. You know, I've said that she, she, was, she kept sort of musing about what death might bring and she, she kept quoting Hamlet, mm. the undiscovered burn. I can't remember exactly what it is from which no one returns. So, yeah, good and bad, I think. Peg, and finally, you write in that last essay about the passing of time and you said that after a year or so you were able to read again and that after the passing of time, and you've said, under the spell of art, and I think you're talking here about your mother and probably about Georgia, and also you were talking about David McComb, who you've um, referred to, that under the spell of art, a dead person can be restored. How does that happen? I guess, again, it goes back to, you know, it might not be the same for everyone, but it does go back to that feeling for me that in the art that I love, and this means visual art and music as well as mm. um, literature, mm. that those things seem to me to be as alive as any person. Mm. Um, and so... So did you mean that David lived on through his music in the sense? He lived, and he lived on through his music and through the conversation I'd been having with his music for all of my life. So when we, when we had to decide which was our favourite album, we challenged each other. We had, to, we had to sort of draw out the, you know, what are the boundaries of this? Why is it your favourite? Well, it's your favourite if you can still listen to it. And I was, I'd, I've been listening to Born Sandy Devotional my whole life. And I'm still listening to it, so I'm still in conversation with it. And because of the spell of that, David McComb is still here because he's singing to me and we're talking to each other. And what about so, with your mum? Does, does she live on in the books that you read together? And with Georgia, does she live on in the, I know you talk about the beautiful final book that she wrote as well as The Wolf yeah. and the Dog, which was her yeah. penultimate book with the Museum of Love. Do, yeah. Do they, do George and your mum live on for you? Georgia in yeah. her own writing and your mum in the writing of others that you've shared? It's sort of interestingly different um, with the two of them. I sort of need to qualify and say that Georgia and I were close, but I was by no means a really, really close friend of hers. We just had that kind of writing friendship that you mm. strike up sometimes where the times that we saw each other were very intimate and intense, mm. but they were not. She had wonderful, supportive friends who were with her. She was dying and I wasn't one of those. Mm -hmm. um, with her, uh, what, what we, we spoke about each other's work, but what, what actually lives on with me and Georgia is the speaking about the work, not the work itself. So one of the reasons we were such close friends is we were able to really talk very intimately about the way we worked and what we were trying to write and how we were doing it and how we were trying to manage that alongside uh, being a parent. Mm. And that that is a very, very, very vivid set of memories for me and I can see George's face and if you ever hear her interview, she had this fabulous deep voice and this big laugh. Mm. She was a really remarkable woman. Uh, with my mum, the, the things that are most vivid are the... Um, the times that she would point things out to me in the landscape or in her life and she couldn't find her own words to describe them or she didn't bother to find her own words to describe them, she would use the words of a poet to describe them. So one of the things that she would always say when we crossed, so we lived in Hunters Hill, so we quite often crossed the Bladesville Bridge at night and she loved Hart Crane's poem, The Bridge, and she said that he described the... Um, 
headlights on, on the crest of a hill going over the bridge as the immaculate sigh of stars. And she must have said that to me 10 or 15 times throughout my childhood with no regard for whether or not I was old enough to understand what she was talking about. But she would say, oh, look, the immaculate sigh of stars. Mm. And um, that gives a particular life to the conversation that we had and the relationship that we had because those words are always going to be there. Mum and I are going to be dead and gone, but the immaculate sigh of stars lives on. (laughs) Tegan, that's a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so very much for talking to me today and for joining me on Books, Books, Books. Tegan Bennett Daylight, please, listeners, grab this wonderful book. You will want to read it from start to finish and hopefully you're enjoyment of it will be enhanced by having listened to this conversation it's been a real delight thank you for listening to books 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 if you liked what you heard in this episode please go to my website nicoleabbody.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast you can also find me nicole abbody on facebook instagram and twitter and look for my reviews in good weekend You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.